Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as a senior correspondent at Yahoo News. Uh, my guest this week is Renee DeResta. She's a technical... I'm going to get this wrong. I'll just say she's affiliated at with the Stanford Internet Observatory, studying, among other things, disinformation, Russian active measures, influence operations. And the reason I've invited uh, Renee on today is she did a thread just the other day about Yevgeny Prigozhin, who listeners of the show will know has been a frequent subject of conversation and discussion. He is the Russian oligarch and now self-admitted financier of both the Wagner Mercenary Corps which is busy fighting and dying in droves in in uh, Ukraine, in the city of Bakhmut in particular. Also now the self-confessed, I believe the formulation was he didn't just finance and support the Internet Research Agency, more colloquially known as the St. Petersburg Troll Farm, which interfered in the U.S. 2016 presidential election, but he created the concept for the IRA. So he is the man of, of the hour in, in many respects. And I know Renee and her organization have been tracking him and his activities for many years, as have I in my journalism. And I wanted to bring her on because, Renee, it's kind of like an extraordinary thing when you go back and you look at how litigious Prigozhin has been against news outlets and individuals such as Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat, uh, Medusa, independent uh, Russian media organizations based in Latvia when they have made these accusations that this is the guy who's paying all the bills for Putin's shadow army, which is not just in Ukraine and Syria and Central African Republic, but is now doing political technology operations all throughout the world, government in a box style consultancies, signing arms contracts on behalf of the Russian Ministry of Defense. Tell us a little bit about the work you and the Stanford Observatory have done on Prigozhin. And, you know, the, the word oligarch is too much of a cliche, yeah. and it doesn't really do justice to right. just how hyperactive and ambitious this guy has been. And I also, we can get into the will he, won't he, in terms of a kind of aspiring political role for himself in Russia, given the, the activities that, that he's got up to now and since the war in Ukraine started. So who is Yevgeny Prigozhin? Why don't we start there? So one of the things that's been interesting for me as I've watched the story evolve, I, I first started paying attention in around 2015. And that was because I was actually working on something completely unrelated to Russia. I was working on some of the questions around uh, ISIS. And this interesting question, one of the things that ISIS really raised was what happens when entities use Western social media affordances to run vast propaganda operations um, to establish, for example, ISIS was really going quite hard for the virtual caliphate. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was interesting about that debate at the time was that it was focused very much on one adversary. And what do we do about the terrorists? And I thought that that was perhaps a bit short-sighted. So did some of the other people who were working on this project with me. Because if a terrorist organization recognized the potential, then surely um, state actor entities that had run propaganda operations across a vast array of internet, you know, a vast array of um, communication mediums over a span of decades would appreciate the potential as well. And even as we were thinking in those terms, Adrian Chen writes the article, The Agency. Mm -hmm which I found absolutely compelling, uh, not least because of the way they managed to pull him in, right? The elements of trolling, that innate understanding of attention capture of, um, you know, in, in a way it felt sort of like that uniquely Russian style of ironic or maybe kind of sarcastic engagement with the, um, with the subject. Of course, we're not doing it, but if we are, it's fine. Right. And so I was interested in it from that perspective. And then through a series of kind of, uh, you know, weird turns, wound up leading one of the investigations into the 2018 data set that was turned over to Sissy. So this was the data set that uh, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and Google, I think, yeah, Google ads as well, uh, Alphabet turned over to the Senate Intelligence Committee in response to the question, what had uh, the Internet Research Agency, what had Russia done to manipulate the discourse in the United States from 20? 15 or so to 2018, but of course, very much focused on the 2016 presidential election. So I wound up doing quite a deep dive into the mechanics of the IRA that was about a year long research project looking at, you know, several hundred gigs of material across all these different platforms um, to try to understand the MO of this organization and how it operated. Now, there had been others who had looked at the IRA's activities, for example, around MH17 or around Crimea, right? So it's prior action, prior to it really focusing heavily on the United States, its ability to manipulate the discourse, to flood the zone, to use a variety of propaganda tactics to shape and drive attention. Uh, so all of a sudden, we had this new and novel form of propaganda that was perhaps less about persuasion, more about distraction uh, in the United States, more about activation, right, about identifying a group that already existed and really amplifying that and boosting it. And so watching even that that evolution from 
2014, when they were running things like the Colombian chemicals hoax, uh, you know, pretending that there had been a, a chemical plant explosion in Louisiana. So originally kind of trying their hand at could we create hoaxes? Could we manipulate the public through, um, you know, sort of through strategic falsehoods to MH17 and the flood the zone with a whole slew of narratives to what they wound up kind of settling in on with the Internet Research Agency and this novel segmentation of the American public. So there's this really interesting evolution in that few short years. And they were always kind of at the vanguard mm-hmm. of, of information operations. And one of the things that began to happen was, of course, after our report came out about the 2018 operations, you do see social media companies begin to take a very, very, very strong hand at going after troll armies in general, but progressions in particular. You know, you do see really quite a lot of takedowns related to Russia. I think over the next few years, on average, we wrote a report maybe once every six months about something that that a progression linked entity had done. And so it really became understanding the evolution of this character over time, but it no longer was quite so easily attributable to the IRA because some of these entities were in, were fo- some of these information operations were focused on Africa and appeared to be tied to places where the Wagner group was operating. So it got a little bit blurry and we started using language like manipulation campaigns linked to entities believed to be affiliated with Yevgeny Prigozhin. And that was because he was also going around left and right, like suing people for insinuating that he had any ties to the Wagner Group or the Internet Research Agency. Mm -hmm. So this kind of novel constellation of things where, again, you know, of course, we're not doing it. But if we are, it's great sort of uh, trolling style. Mm -hmm. Like we said, he was denying that he was involved in any of this stuff, even though he had been serially sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department. I mean, you mentioned Adrian Chen's sort of pathfinding piece, and I think it was the New York Times magazine, and featured heavily in the Mueller report, right? Yes. I mean, the IRA was one of the sort of linchpin sort of methods of interference in the 2016 presidential election. And I want to come to the kind of debate, uh, not just the debate, but the the weird revisionist history and distortion of the debate about just how influential uh, or, or, you know, impactful trolling was in shaping the U.S. electorate. But, you know, Prigozhin is now, he's a U.S. official, I, I queried a, just a few weeks ago, kind of likened him to Qasem Soleimani, the Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force commander who kind of operated in the shadows for so long. And then when the counter-ISIS campaign began and was in Iraq, was sort of the selfie soldier, right? Taking photographs, posing with Iranian-backed militias and so on. And everyone had had hypothesized at the time that Soleimani was kind of auditioning for a political role in the Iranian leadership. And Prigozhin now suddenly is everywhere. He's in Solidar, in the salt mines. He's in the cockpit of a Sukhoi fighter jet, which Wagner, as a mercenary corps, they have access to the Russian conventional military's air force, right? He's doing things that, I talk about this with Christo Grozev of Bellingcat uh, all the time. He clearly is positioning himself for some kind of new significant political role. And the question is, can he get it? Or is he being used by the presidential administration of Russia and Putin perhaps himself as a kind of lever arm with which to batter the defense ministry, the general staff in Russia? You know, I mean, there's this kind of question of like, how far can Prigozhin go, right? And what is your take on sort of his ambitions and what he's aspiring to do inside and I guess outside of Russia too, because given, as you say, they've got a finger in every pie around the world, it seems. So one one of the things that was very interesting about some of the activity we saw in Africa was how Prigozhin was sort of front and center within it. So even, I'm trying to remember which particular takedown that was, it might've been Mali or CAR, and that was around 2020, some, sometime in the middle of 2020, we started to see these takedowns where um, there would be um, food aid provided and photographs of the bags of rice and Prigozhin's name would be on the bag of rice. And this would go kind of, you know, be shared to a gajillion pages across Facebook and some of which uh, were authentic, some of which were not authentic. Uh, but you would see him appear as a character in the narratives about Wagner Group in these places, which I thought was sort of an interesting shift even a while back. But of course, this was, you know, purely for humanitarian reasons. They were only there for peacekeeping and humanitarian reasons. And that was the that was the narrative that was being propagated. While at the same time, there was this very Prigozhin-centered cluster of content. What we started to see, though, I think it's hard to, you have obviously a very ambitious and self-serving individual. And so I would definitely defer to you and to Bellingcat and to, you know, Medusa and others who've 
profiled him over the years around where he fits in the kind of evolving constellation of figures, particularly uh, post-invasion of Ukraine. But we did see sort of three interesting recent comments. Um, I think September 26, 2022 is where you get the acknowledgement that he runs Wagner Group. And this is after the, the video that you're mentioning where he's recruiting. Mm-hmm. And that was, a, you know, obviously quite the shift given that he sued Bellingcat, Medusa, and others uh, for making these claims in the past. Again, despite for The Intercept, I think, uh, in October of 2022, dropped a very interesting archive. And in that archive, they're highlighting the different law firms that are defending him and suing his, you know, suing to try to silence coverage of him. And so you see the extent to which preventing those sort of links, you know, preventing people from from articulating those links was such a priority for such a long time. And then all of a sudden, uh, we get a VK post to Concord's page uh, saying, I, I run Wagner Group, and that was September of 2022. And then, of course, this is like in time proximity to the United States elections, you start to get now November 7th, which I think was maybe even the day before the election, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. We interfered, we are interfering, and we will interfere. Um, that's a very uh, poetic construct there mm-hmm. in which he, you know, both, I personally read it as as trolling, but again, a trolling of that sort of semi-ironic, but also, yes, in fact, we are doing this dynamic. It was very interesting to see how it was processed. I found it a little bit frustrating in that it did sort of spark quite a lot of hysteria. What are they doing in our elections tomorrow sort of thing as opposed to... Right. Um, and we can talk about this, maybe a, a more appropriate contextualization of the real impact his handiwork has had in the U.S. over the years. But again, he makes that statement on November 7th, rec- you know, of course, the full implications as the U.S. Uh, you know moves into midterm elections 24 hours later. And then we get Yesterday, I founded the IRA. I was never just a financier. I thought it up. I created it. And then he goes into how it was uh, designed to protect the Russian information space from the, you know, hegemonic propaganda of the West. And uh, mm-hmm. so again, then you start to see an acknowledgement of his ties to the IRA. Now, for years and years and years, there have been these sorts of constellations of figures that have been affiliated with various foundations, with RIA Fan, um, and with some of the other entities that he has ties to. And this question of who sits in what seat, you know, <laughs> is this person in Wagner, are they in a foundation, are they an RIA Fan? Uh, there's a lot of movement, a lot of uh, indications of intersections. And then, as you noted, we have, you know, our exchange yesterday was around that sort of baffling CJR piece that in discussing coverage of Russiagate, and we can talk about what that term actually means at this point, uh, you see them accept the plausible deniability veneer that he has constructed over all of these years, which is a little bit surprising to me uh, to see in a publication like CJR. You mentioned that his his acknowledgement that he was the conceptual artist, if you like, and the financier of the Internet Research Agency was uh, broadcast through Concord, one of the catering companies he owns. And you know, one of the things that people who think all allegations of Russian interference in the U.S. election uh, was fraudulent, a hoax, some kind of FBI quote unquote, deep state stitch up. One of the things that they like to bring to light here is Department of Justice, I think, dropped yes. charges against, was it Concord or a subsidiary? It was Concord. It was Concord, right? I think it was several different organizations. Yeah. Yeah. This is taken to be kind of a gotcha moment that there really was no there there, right? So here comes Evgeny Prigozhin after all these years, after you've got, in effect, useful idiots in the West defending him and paying credence to hit to this plausible deniability, which really was increasingly implausible as time went on. And so much investigative reporting showed who he really was and what he was up to. And he just comes right out and says it. Yeah, this is me. And by the way, oh, the catering company that you were going to charge, but you, then you dropped the charge. That's what I'm using as a vehicle to take credit for all the things. You mentioned this kind of Russian sort of penchant or genius for trolling. I see that as the quintessence of trolling, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. He's sticking it right in the eye of the American federal law enforcement bodies, the Department of Justice, and also in a way tweaking people who have been carrying water for him for all this time, right? I mean, how embarrassing. Maybe Evgeny Prigozhin is a secret CIA asset who exists on this earth to make Matt Taibbi look a little conspiratorial and, and nutty, right? I want to get into kind of the revisionist history of Everything that has transpired from 2016 onward, Crossfire Hurricane, the Mueller report, you mentioned the Senate Subcommittee on Intelligence report with five volumes of which most people haven't read, but is actually more comprehensive and detailed than anything that's in Mueller about exactly to the granular level what the Russians were up to. What we is- were 
Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut off your question. Well, no, go, go say what you were going to say, and then maybe I'll prompt a different kind of question. We were doing that. So my team and the other teams that were looking at this data set were doing it throughout 2018, which is when the Mueller report was happening. Of course, nobody knew that, you know who was doing this work for the Senate, and that was mostly there were a couple. There was there was one hearing, there was one public hearing, there were some um, some briefings to keep them updated as we did the work. Um, but Mueller was happening entirely separately, and one of my ongoing sources of immense frustration um, was that we were only looking at, only asked to interrogate the data sets attributed by the platforms, handed over to SISI. And then what we did with them was we really tried to keep it as neutral as possible. Here is what we see in the data. Here is a discussion of the contours of this data set, everything from understanding engagement to narrative strategy, to how these entities fit together, to what extent we could see ties to the GRU's action, which was, of course, the separate hack and leak operation. And could we find any deep connections there? And the answer was really only narratives. And we can talk about um, why, you know, why that is. But one of the things that was so, so my, my kind of immense frustration was that even as this investigation into collusion and all of the various myriad things that, in, in my understanding, was what, quote unquote, Russiagate meant, you know, the extent to which the president, uh, President Trump or his campaign were involved or winning, that was sort of happening completely over off to the side of everything that we were doing. And so it was very interesting, as you note, the Senate incorporated our work, but then also did its own very comprehensive investigation leading to that five volume report. We would see things that would come out from Mueller, of course, just reading the newspaper as we as we did our work. And so um, watching the indictment of uh, Project Lakta, right, the accountants in particular, where you start to see the $20 million uh, expenditure into funding this operation. This was, of course, the $20 million expenditure that Mueller notes in the indictment is then it really exists in quite direct contrast to the sort of disparaging narrative, oh, it was just $100,000 of Facebook ads, you know, they weren't really investing any money in this at all. Right. Um, but you do see in the, in the you know, if you like connect the dots between the documents, you do see quite a lot related to the internal structure of the operation over there, and then us looking at the execution, right, what it did. You mentioned, though, one thing I want to bring up, I was very frustrated with that particular contextualization of Justice Department dropping charges, because there was another thing that happened in that case that was interesting. So I think the charges were levied, uh, the indictment came down in 2018. Mm -hmm. And what happened in 2019 was that during the discovery process, um, Concord obtained some documents, and they created this Twitter account called Hacking Redstone. I don't know if you remember this. And they dropped some of the documents that they obtained during discovery as if they had hacked the Mueller investigation. Mm. So this was really, uh, you know, this was like immensely, I imagine, irritating to DOJ because they just dropped this cache of documents saying you can view all the files Mueller had about IRA and Russian collusion, you know, enjoy the reading. Again, a troll, right? Here you are, like, F you, we got these documents from Discovery and here they are. Now, now the world can see them. And so this was sort of a, when it came down to deciding whether or not to drop the charges in the news coverage of it from 2020, you can read this, you know, this debate in which the question becomes, um, you know, prosecutors are saying, is it worth the prosecution? You can't enforce anything. You can't really punish this guy. Is it worth exposing the national security secrets or the methods by which these things were obtained or the documents themselves right. and giving them to him so that he then goes and does this again? And so that is very much the sort of kind of history that goes into why DOJ drops the charges. But then, of course, you know, the coverage of it in CJR recently, unfortunately, recasts it as, um, you know, something along the lines of uh, it was just private actors doing private business. And, you know, Mueller doesn't have any source of a connection between Putin and Prigozhin, short of an article in the New York Times. So it really kind of downplays all of the things that happened around that court case. And I think, you know, one of the things that that I've tried to emphasize in understanding, well, actually, I should rephrase it, in our failure to fully understand and appreciate the totality of evidence that the U.S. government has got when it comes to Russian intelligence operations or Russian influence campaigns in the United States is what I would call sort of the, the Venona phenomenon, right? So Venona, you know, the secret signal intelligence collection mechanism the FBI relied on in, I think, the 1940s and only went a few years. But essentially, all the communication from Washington, D.C., from the Soviet residentura and the embassy, and also New York, their mission to the UN, back to Moscow was hoovered up by U.S. intelligence. And this was a treasure trove of data about American operatives working for the Soviets, you know, in the United States, what the Soviets were up to here and elsewhere, code names, in some cases, legal names of people. And 
what it showed was there were people that the FBI and the US government had dead to rights as being spies for the Soviet Union, but they didn't were, were not able to always bring them to book on those charges because doing so in court would disclose the existence of this highly sensitive and classified program known as Venona, right? So what, what would they try to do? They'd get people on perjury charges. Sound familiar? They'd get them if they were illegal immigrants on doctoring their paperwork to come to the United States and have them deported back, all of these other kind of lesser charges. And you look at Mueller and you look at some of the things that people went to jail for, or at least were convicted and and sentenced for, and you begin to get get a sense that there is probably more there than was published in that report. There is probably more than even what the Senate published in its five-volume, you know, Bible on Russiagate. Uh, And we're not, unfortunately, and this may sound like a cop-out, but that's just the way national security matters work. We're not going to know about this for years, if not decades, right? Because it'll have to be declassified as part of some freedom of information request down the line. And that's difficult. That's why historians kind of pick up where journalists leave off, right? And yeah, I mean, but but already now, you know, again, we have people like Prigozhin doing us favors by just coming right out and saying, guilty as charged. After years, of saying the opposite. I wanted to ask you about the, when you, you're saying CJR, so for, for those of you who listen to the show who aren't aware, sometimes we we kind of get into the nitty gritty of something without zooming back and giving some context and explanation. So CJR is Columbia Journalism Review. And I think, what, two weeks ago, they ran an exhaustive 25, 24,000 word multi-part essay on what they would characterize as the media's malfeasance and failure to report honestly and credibly on Trump and his alleged ties to the Russian government. And you've already mentioned how they kind of sprinkled cold water on this idea that Prigozhin was behind the Internet Research Agency. They've also sort of taken at face value denials that Konstantin Kalimnik, Paul Manafort's sort of gray cardinal operative, very keyed in with the Yanukovych government in Ukraine, that he isn't a Russian intelligence officer, which the Senate subcommittee described him as the FBI has, I think, indicted him for being, uh, well, they've described him in, as that in indicting him for, I think, election interference or something like that. And the, basically the argument is, well, he says he's not a Russian spy, so that should be taken at face value too, right? He can't be, he's denied it publicly. And oh, well, you know, John Solomon in the Washington Examiner had had said that, oh, or the Hill, that in fact, he was a State Department informant, you know, as though American diplomats don't talk to all kinds of nefarious and dodgy characters. I mean, I remember reading in the State Department cables that WikiLeaks published, you know, Bill Taylor, then US ambassador to Kiev, had sat at length with Dmitry Firtash, the Russian oligarch, I'm sorry, the Ukrainian oligarch very close to Putin, who is also accused of being in the Russian mafia, right, and doing all kinds of He's now under also U.S. federal indictment. So American officials sit down with all kinds of people, including Russian intelligence officers. But I want to get your take on the CJR sort of campaign to essentially claim that this was all just one big conspiracy. There was no there there. The media just simply invented or rather was spoon fed whatever its sources in the National Security Council or State Department or wherever else were feeding it about Trump's connections to Russia. What do you make of this? Because this is supposed to be the bulwark of journalistic ethics, right? CJR, it's the watchdog group for media. I don't know if this is going to sound maybe a little bit weird, but I've stayed so focused over the years on what we have hard evidence of. And for me personally, and for my work, that has really always focused on the outputs and the propaganda, not the shadowy connections to people. And to the extent of the, you know, media coverage is an interesting thing, right? The phenomenon of uh, Gelman amnesia. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? This this idea that uh, Gelman amnesia, I think the quote comes from Michael Crichton originally, but it's it makes the argument that when you read newspaper coverage of a thing that you know very, very deeply, you can see the errors, you can see the miscontextualizations, and um, Crichton uses the phrase, wet streets cause rain, right? Where the cause and effect is almost fully flipped because the reporter does not actually understand what they're looking at or what they're reading. Uh, but then the Gelman amnesia part, the amnesia part is when you turn the page and then you read their coverage of something that you don't understand and you forget <laughs> where you saw through the, you know, the sort of holes in the coverage around the topic you are an expert in. And then you go and you see, oh, of course, they must be reporting this agriculture policy completely correctly, because I don't know anything about that. And interestingly, this for me has been in the, you know, in the, in the quote unquote Russiagate coverage. I actually can't tell you at this point what the hell Russiagate refers to. I don't know what it means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
And so I feel like it's just become a shibboleth, right? It's just a phrase. It's almost like a hashtag that's sort of like, I am aggrieved about mainstream coverage. Is mainstream coverage good? I would venture to guess that in many cases, the answer is no, it had some flaws. It was mistaken. It could have been kind of errors acknowledged after the fact. Or I do think that that is a reasonable critique of media. As I read the CJR thing, there were two pieces that stuck out to me, and that was because they were about the areas that I do know. And the first was the Prigozhin piece, which you know we've talked about. And again, my sort of <laughs> feeling of horror that we were in a very, very reputable outlet in this very, very long piece, uh, which again, I was sort of assuming a lot of it was right, because what did I know about it? Then I got to that part and I thought, well, okay, that's not that's not accurate. And then the other piece that, that I didn't love um, or that I thought was very, very misleading was the part where it discusses the IRA's quote-unquote supposed efficiency. And this is where they begin to discuss the operation itself. And they zoom in and they really, the, the passage of the article focuses very much on ads, focuses very much on Facebook ads. Right. And my immense frustration with that is that ads are a gateway to content. Ads are not the end state of content. And what we what we diagram out over and over and over again is that one, the IRA actually did have very, very good click-through rates and very good um, kind of cost relative to uh, to conversion, so to speak, where they are getting a lot of clicks on their ads. Now, one of the things that we lack visibility into is a lot of times the call to action in the ad was to follow the page. Right. We can see some of these pages had over a half million followers. We cannot make the connection back from the ad clickers to the page followers, because for user protection reasons, we are not given visibility into that sort of user journey, if you will. Right. But at the same time, the way that engagement happens is not with the ad. It's what happens when you follow the page and engage with the page and share the page. And that's where you see hundreds of millions of engagements with the organic content. So if we're talking about propaganda and persuasion, or if we're talking about activation uh, or entrenchment of highly partisan figures within an identity they already hold. All of that is happening, not in the ads, but once you're already a follower of the page. And so the entire point of the report, um, which the Senate incorporated into its report, was just to detail that process, the process by which people engaged with the content, the process by which it was shared, and then some of the narratives that were particularly prominent around, for example, voter suppression and other things. Mm -hmm. So would we make the claim that this was hugely impactful across the entirety of the U.S. public? No, but that's not how you would evaluate any kind of campaign. We call it the denominator problem, right? When you're talking about prevalence, the denominator that you choose, that the population that you're talking about really sets how efficacious in that population it is. So if you say, for example, the entirety of the United States, what percentage of the entirety of the United States saw it, you're, it's, it's a very, very low percentage. If you ask questions like, for example, um, Black uh, Black Americans on Instagram, right, you might get a different answer. People residing in the state of Texas who are joining the sort of secessionist pages, what is the, you know, what is the number there? And again, we did not feel comfortable in any way weighing in on the idea that this swung the election, except to say that it likely did not because the numbers weren't there. But again, we could not make that connection back to user behavior, what they went on to do next. Did they join more extreme other pages after two months of following this kind of propaganda? Right. And so that's where you just kind of hope that, particularly in something like CJR, we could just kind of get a little bit of the nuance. I know it just took me five minutes to explain it, but even just like a couple sentences <laughs> beyond just like, oh, it was only you know $2,930 of Facebook ads spent during the election cycle to describe mm -hmm. an operation that persisted for three years and was about far more than the US election. And so that was my, um, my frustration. Again, the two parts of the story that I understood uh, was, was where I felt like, felt like I could critique that. And then I've just been reading other people's uh, kind of comments about a lot of the rest of it. Well, you know, I remember, you know, far more about this. I mean, this is your area of expertise and what you dedicate your scholarship to. But I remember at the time thinking, okay, let's try to track the provenance of some of the main tropes of disinformation and conspiracy theory in the American electorate at the time. And as far as I could tell, based on just the reporting, there was really only one credible example, or one example, I should say, that was produced by my colleague, Michael Isikoff at Yahoo, which is the SVR cooked up this active measure that, you know, Seth Rich was killed by, it was it was an inside job at the DNC, right? Which, as we know, to say that that went viral is, I think, understating the case, right? I mean, it led to sort of physical acts of intimidation, violence, and the family being, you know, sort of harassed and hounded. But everything else, broadly, maybe I'm wrong, but as I remember it, 
everything else or most of the main tropes were homegrown, right? Could be tracked to, I don't know, Reddit forums or, you know, just kind of very loudmouth, conspiratorially minded Americans. But that doesn't mean that Russian actors or Russian sort of astroturfy campaigns didn't propagate and amplify those messages, right? That, that was, what you was know, yeah. Right. It's like, you know, if, if a bunch of lemmings are headed toward the precipice of a cliff and you've got people standing near the precipice, waving them on and encouraging them and, and you know, it, doing something to make them fall that much faster. That's kind of what I like in the Russian sort of information war. Uh, in the election. Now, that, that leaves to one side, by the way, and this is getting, getting to your point, what is quote unquote Russiagate? So a lot of people who would like to relitigate the last, what is it now, seven, eight years and claim everything was fraudulent. Mueller was fraudulent. Crossfire Hurricane, fraudulent. The Senate subcommittee reports, fraudulent. FBI has basically got blood in its hands. These are the same people, if you really drill down to what they mean, they don't believe the GRU hacked the DNC. They characterize that as unproven or there's no evidence to suggest it. Whilst at the same time, that that is a central finding of the Mueller report. At the same time, they defer to Mueller to say, well, he showed there's no evidence of conspiracy, which is the really legal term for quote unquote collusion. Therefore, there's no there there. So which is it? Either Mueller's full of shit or Mueller is the definitive view of the US intelligence community and what actually transpired. It's, it's having your cake and eating it too, right? In a grand fashion. Well, and that's the the sort of political identity-based way in which this situation has come to be processed. I will say, you mentioned Seth Rich. That was, I think I said this, in 2019, we evaluated GRU, um, GRU-attributed material. Mm-hmm. So 2018 was uh, Internet Research Agency. 2019 was GRU. 2019 was also when we found the first, what we called Wagner Group or uh, Evgeny Prigozhin-attributed things that did not seem to be the IRA mm-hmm. because there were also sort of financial records, but seemed quite tied you know, very, very similar MO uh, in the way that those operations were conducted. Um, Seth Rich was a topic that was leveraged heavily by both because it was so advantageous. So the Internet Research Agency on its propaganda pages, again, which had segmented American society into quite identity-based distinct groups, really leaned very heavily into Seth Rich, including, interestingly, not only on the right, but also in the sort of Bernie left groups that it was targeting. It saw Seth Rich as highly advantageous to this idea. You know, most of the operation, I think you can classify it as pro-Trump, but interestingly, during the primary, they were really supporting Rand Paul before moving to Trump. So it was almost more, in many ways, anti-Clinton, and that, and that persisted over over quite some time. So you do see, again, the uh, on the anti-Clinton front, pushing Bernie folks towards Trump would be a bridge too far, but they do leverage Seth Rich to highlight distrust of, you know, DNC and uh, and party machine politics, which, you know, again, nobody's saying that there's not a reason to distrust that, uh, but it's just how it was used. There was another area, though, that was of topical overlap. We actually wrote an entire academic paper on this, um, and it was Syria. And one thing that I found really striking about this was that the GRU, military intelligence, does its usual thing, which is they set up front media properties with front journalists, and they try to do what we call narrative laundering, which is take these stories and place them in increasingly reputable journals as cross posts, or get their fake journalists um, to have content accepted as a contributed piece in reputable Western media, right? So this is a strategy the GRU is running, constantly talking about Syria. And this is where you see really the full spectrum propaganda of the Russian state. So you have, keep in mind, you have this kind of what we might call covert broadcast media, front media, right? So um, black propaganda was the, the term for it in the olden days. And then you have the Internet Research Agency trolls which is social media first, speaking directly to the audience, directly to the public as a member of the community. So you see them go hard for Syria content. And I thought this was so interesting because like nobody in the United States was paying attention to this conflict, but they would still sprinkle quite regularly posts about Syria to the black community group, the leftist community group, like left-leaning community group, and then the right-leaning community group. And they would inflect the story for each of these three different audiences. So for the black community, it was literally uh, Flint doesn't have clean water why are we fighting a foreign war? For the left, it was the same old, same old, you know, uh, the kind of anti-war machine content that has played very well in that community for years. They didn't even have to be creative. And then on the right, it was Muslim refugees are coming because the United States is fighting a war in Syria. Why is the United States bringing refugees here from a war that, you know, that we started? Refugees take benefits away from our veterans. 
So you have this, they've got this persistent kind of commentary about Syria. So you've got inside Syria media center is writing the broadcast narrative propaganda that we've seen, you know, throughout the Cold War and, you know, even World War One, World War Two. that sort of state propaganda effort. The Internet Research Agency is doing this, uh, this thing with the IRA trolls. And then you see official attributable state media quoting from both of these sources and embedding it into RT and Sputnik coverage, where they use the phenomenon of the man on the street. Somebody on Twitter is saying this thing. Now, of course, they control the Twitter account, but that doesn't matter. Here it is. And, you know, <laughs> here it is embedded in a Sputnik article. Yeah. And you see Prigozhin do this quite regularly with RIA Fan also with his uh, the Federal News Agency publication that he runs, kind of or nominally runs, who knows if he's claimed that one yet, in addition to all of this. And so you see the extent to which these things are operated part and parcel in complementary ways uh, just to reinforce a, a state-linked perception to push it sometimes to the West, sometimes to the general public, sometimes to a very targeted group. But that's the sort of process by which this happens. And so I do think my, to tie this back to your question about like Russiagate though, we tend to over-focus, I think, on the impact on one of these things or another of these things. And we don't necessarily see it as a comprehensive holistic strategy by a well-resourced actor. And that should be, in my opinion, the lens through which all this stuff is viewed. So is any one Twitter account, the be all end all of shaping public opinion? No, of course not. But it is important, I think, to understand all of these things in context as great power narrative manipulation, which, you know, the response back can be, oh, the US does it too. Sure, we can hold that aside (laughs) and still reckon with the fact that this is what's happening. And that's how we should understand it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very well said. And unfortunately, most people don't have the time or the inclination to wade through thousands upon thousands of pages of Senate documents. And I think most people probably even haven't read the Mueller report, even though it was printed in paperback copies, you know, once it came out. And it's it sort of landed very anticlimatically, like, like a dud, right? It sort of seemed like, oh, okay, the, the Trump campaign was trying to do all of these things. But even the Russians were kind of scratching their heads thinking these guys are like schmucks and, you know, sort of low rent political operatives and not serious actors. But as you say, I mean, this was a multi-pronged strategy. You had the hack and leak operation, which was very opportunistically timed to essentially distract from Trump's big scandal, right? The the first trash came down. That Uh actually did kind of spawn Pizzagate, Mm -hmm. which again, I think, you know, we can't, (laughs) perhaps that succeeded beyond their wildest dreams (laughs) in in how American investigators, quote unquote, uh, went and took that tranche of documents. But then you did again, see once Pizzagate and claims like that began to be present. You do see again the state sponsored trolls become an accelerant and really try to amplify that and push it along because it's quite advantageous. Yeah. I mean, none of this, by the way, is to rob Americans of their own agency and frankly culpability in falling for stuff. You know, I mean, right. You know, Finland has a very good model of educating its youth to read the media skeptically and critically, not reflexively click like on something just because it's popular on social media. I mean, this is a multi-generational thing that America has yet to figure out how to, or even if it can, invest in because it's so polarized now, this subject of what is disinformation. We used to try, though. Do you, have you ever gone back to the archives of like Active Measures Working Group or yeah. um, efforts? Which, by the way, that was Reagan and Gingrich. That was not some like lefty effort to no, you know, propagate the public. They were yeah, no, this is very stuff. much. Uh, and it, you, I've been uh, I'm working on a book on influence. And so I've been down in all these old archives. And the um, and it is very interesting because they operate with a very particular point of view, which is that we're not even going to bother to try to counter most of the stuff. We're just going to lay it out for the public and articulate that it's happening. But I you, you read it and it's you're really struck by the fact that 50 percent of the public today would just reject the reveal, even depending on whether they trusted exactly. not only the now, now it's like all of the agencies, all of the institutions, in addition to the office of the presidency. And so I do think that we did, in fact, once have something kind of like this. And then that sort of educational style you know, drifted away. And yeah, I don't well, know how we like get that back at this point. Broad social consensus and bipartisan buy into the idea that the Soviets were an enemy and they were looking to undermine American democracy and countermand American interests abroad. Whereas today you have prominent voices on the right and also the far left who are saying, well, actually, you know, Putin, Putin's the good guy in this situation. And even if he did try to interfere, who cares? As you pointed out, like, oh, America does even worse than that, right? The, the candidate himself welcomed Russian interference in the form of attempted hacking into his rival's correspondence. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it, I despair over, but I also wonder if there is a solution anymore, because you reach such a point of, of social and cultural degradation that no matter what you try to do to salvage things or to rehabilitate, 
the electric, it, it's not going to succeed. You are one of the, um, I think, rare, nuanced, sober voices critiquing maybe not the conception, but certainly the rollout of this Department of Homeland Security. I forget what it was called, counter disinformation. Yeah, the disinformation. Go- that was a debacle. Yeah. It was a total debacle. And I've talked to members in the Biden administration and the State Department who are like, this should never have been mooted, particularly in the current climate. This was an own goal that makes America, I mean, Ministry of Truth, you know, the Orwellian concept was trending on Twitter for like two days. Oh, yeah. And again, if you really want to fan the flames of sort of febrile conspiratorial thinking that the U.S. government is out to brainwash its own people, way more uh, nefariously so than what Russia or China or Iran or North Korea might be trying to do. This was just a gift, right? How do you, let me ask you, I mean, this is, you're writing a book on this. This is what you've dedicated your professional career to. Is there a a solution? Is there a, a way of rehabilitating our society or at least immunizing ourselves to these kind of sinister foreign narrative shaping exercises? Yeah, I would like to see, I mean, I think we have to acknowledge disinformation is a thing, right? And and that we can even use a very narrow definition of what that means in terms of campaigns. I think that there was a lot of um, a lot of scope creep around the idea of misinformation, right? And this COVID really brought that home, that one of the dynamics in play is that this is not a problem of facts, it's a dynamic of trust in institutions. And institutions did not communicate particularly well. So there is, you know, again, that kind of trust building process that has to happen. I looked at people like Braver Angels and others that are doing this sort of deliberative democracy efforts within communities to rebuild trust at a community level, not even at a, not even at an institutional level. Uh, but there is that, that phenomenon. Then there's the question of, does the public understand what captures their attention and why? And so some of our work at SIO is even just trying to explain basic things like here's how a recommender system works. Or I wrote this essay trying to explain like why certain things trend on Twitter using the metaphor of like a murmuration of starlings. You know, each bird sees the seven birds nearest it. The bird does a thing. The other birds react. You know, can we make people think a little bit more? We use very passive constructs. It went viral, right? To describe something that spreads all over the internet. It didn't go viral. We made it go viral. We shared it, you know? (laughs) (laughs) giving the user more agency or more of an understanding that the decisions that they make feed particular algorithms, which in turn push content out because of the ways that platform design and platform incentives fit together. A lot of what I've been writing about lately has actually been that incentives process, not just the sort of top-level ad-based business model of social media and you know, the sort of attention machines, but at a really basic level, what, you know, what makes an optimal recommender system? Could we be rethinking design because design provides nudges that makes people move in particular directions. Is that where where effort should be spent? On the educational front, if you help people understand that rumors are going to go viral on social media before facts can be known and really explain how that works through entertaining content, you know, here's how a rumor goes viral. Um, can you make people think a little bit differently about their role in spreading rumors, which they might not even be thinking about it in those terms. It's just, oh, I saw something I liked on Twitter and I clicked the button and forwarded it along. So are there ways to turn information consumers into more kind of conscious participants to make them understand how the ecosystem works? I think that's, I've been looking a little bit at that. And then again, you know, what are the ways, what is the role of government? I think that's a very interesting question. We've hit a particularly Sorry, my kid just popped in. <laughs> We've hit a particularly sort of a particularly contentious point of view where sorry, a particular contentious time. Let me refocus myself now that he's gone. Where the even, you know, again, the word disinformation, the word misinformation has been recontextualized as people trying to stop freedom of speech, people trying to censor you, the idea that there is no such thing as this phenomenon, there is nobody trying to use these tools manipulatively. Right. That is a remarkable position to hold, particularly given whatever you think of Russia and Russia Gate. I know my own team and other teams have documented this activity from China, from Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Venezuela, Mexico, not all pointed at the United States. Oftentimes it's domestic, you know, domestic factional battles happening within a country, but it is happening everywhere because people have realized that this is a thing that they can do to shift public opinion or to galvanize an audience. And so even if we hold U.S. domestic politics and partisanship aside, we should be able to look at these other case studies to get the point across that platforms taking down networks of fake accounts is not a bad thing. And that sometimes the FBI actually should be sending in 
fake accounts. The problem that we have, and the thing that we see in the Twitter files that I will kind of give them credit for, is that the FBI seems to be oversubmitting. It seems to be very lazy. There's tons of false positives in there. And so that indicates that they're just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall and letting Twitter sort it out. But again, what you see there is Twitter rejecting the accounts and not taking them down or actioning them, and instead going back and saying, we don't see state actor interference here. There's so pushback, yeah. There's, there's pushback. Also. And so that's, that is, that is in my opinion, actually how the system should work, right? right? Government should at times weigh in on these things when it has credible indicators that some sort of influence operation is taking shape. Well, and yeah. also... Yeah. <laughs> over referring is not good. And, and right. these are like, we can hold two ideas in our head simultaneously. I feel, you know, very, if you kind of make the case to the American people, I do feel like they'll understand that. You know, I saw a bunch of people getting extremely outraged about this story about Israel that just broke today. And, you know, this sort of like, quote unquote, Israeli Cambridge Analytica. And I'm not going to weigh in on that because I have no idea if it was accurately reported or not, or what the truth of that matter is. But it was very interesting to see the simultaneous outrage at, you know, Israeli disinformation campaigns and disinformation for hire. When like, you know, two short weeks ago, we were being told that disinformation is just, you know, a, a figment of the government's imagination and the means by which it censors American speech. Well, I mean, there's just an element of party political confirmation bias, right? I mean, if you're an anti-imperialist right. and you get wind that the Saudis have a troll farm, well, that's got to be true, right? But God forbid, you know, it should be disclosed that the IRGC or the Iranian Ministry of Information... Or the Pentagon. Or the, or the US oh, yeah. Pentagon. The <laughs> Pentagon. I mean, you know, we were doing the same thing in Iraq. Yeah, we wrote that report too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, no, it's bizarre. I mean, you know, when you, you allude to the... Um, you know, the active measures working group, my God, I mean, like Todd Leventhal from the State Department, who until recently was at the State Department was part of that. And then he was also part of the Global Engagement Center, right, which has a very specific and narrow remit. And it was born during the Trump administration, which a lot of its critics seem to fail to appreciate. They go after foreign disinformation, right? They're not looking at Americans talking nonsense. They're looking at Crimea-based fake news portals that have weird connections probably to the Russian security services, but certainly to, in many cases, far-right nationalist figures in Moscow and so on. And yet now they're under assault for being some kind of like seedy operation looking to you know, control the minds of Americans. It's it's bizarre. That's that's why I, I'm concerned because it's one thing to say the US government has no business telling Americans you're full of shit. Fine. I, I get that. And I understand that. I agree. The yeah. spirit and, and, and principles of the First Amendment, fine. But when it comes to foreign countries looking to screw up our country or attack us in some way, when you colonize people's minds, it's a lot easier than going to war physically with them, right? I mean, you've already kind of won the most crucial battle. The U.S. government has a role to play. In fact, I would say it would be remiss not to take up the mantle of defending American democracy in that regard. And yet this is this very concept is being attacked now. So we're well past the, the sort of 1980s kind of Cold War counter disinformation schemes that as you mentioned, the GOP was the paramount promoter of and architect of. It's it has been interesting, I think, to see that change. GEC actually was established in part because the response to ISIS on Twitter. So GEC, GEC was established by executive order under Obama, and then I believe funded and its mission was laid out much more clearly in a uh, congressional action by Senator Portman, and I'm trying to remember Murphy, um, Chris Murphy. Murphy, thank yeah. you. Yes. And so, but it was originally created as people were reckoning with the question, what should the U.S. government do about ISIS? And this was happening uh, at a time, if you can go back and read all these interesting articles, when it wasn't clear whether people thought ISIS trolls should be taken down from Twitter. Now, I don't mean the beheading videos, right? There was some pretty clear, um, you know, sort of uh, gore and incitement and other variety of policy reasons why those uh, why those videos were taken down. But then there were the sort of generic ISIS fanboys, as they were called. And oftentimes they would sit on, on the platforms and they would try to recruit, particularly Western, uh, European oftentimes users on Twitter. And then they would pull them into like kick channels and DM groups and then uh, kind of, uh, you know, ask them to travel to to Syria, you know, teach them how to go through Turkey, all of these things that were happening at the time. And you you can read a number of stories, you know, from the quote unquote jihadi brides, you know, women who were sort of like 15, you know, 15 years old from the UK who kind of went through this process and a number of others. But still, there was a question of like, well, one man's terrorist is not is another man's freedom fighter. If Twitter listens to the US government and takes down ISIS, what happens next? And so meanwhile, what the US government was doing was they were sitting on Twitter and they were counter, they were like tweeting at ISIS fanboys 
using these stupid hashtags like think again, turn away. I do remember this campaign. I do. And I, I remember <laughs> once upon a time in, a, in another life, I guess, I, I wrote a book on ISIS and I remember the State Department. It wasn't GEC, but- GEC it, didn't exist then. Didn't exist But this was then. why GEC came into existence. It was, it was right. specifically related to whatever, I'm trying to remember what the name of the old State Department entity was, but like the general sense that that was just not a viable solution. And one of the theories was perhaps, again, partnerships for- counter-radicalization things would be better suited by Global Engagement Center either funding or supporting in-region trusted voices to do that counter-speech. Well, and and that also, was the vision originally. And you yeah. know, and, so. and the problem the State Department had, and they would admit this very to their credit, is unlike most propaganda, ISIS leaned into, in fact, luxuriated in its own atrocity and its own ultraviolence, right? So burning someone alive in a cage that's not something that like the North Koreans would want to take credit for, right? ISIS, however, sold it and they sold it on the basis of moral equivalency. You know, we're doing to you what you have done to us and our children and all the rest of it. And so state, the US government was at a loss on how to, to countermand. I remember going to a dinner um, that was hosted by the then Secretary of Public Affairs at state, very nice guy, former Time Magazine journalist, right? Who, but was at a loss to how do we kind of counteract this stuff? And, you know, the suggestions that were mooted around the table were, well, we should go and bring kind of Arab Muslims from the Middle East to the United States and show them that we have mosques here. And it, it was just like, you guys don't know the first thing about the way ISIS is prosecuting its own information war, right? This just shows me. And and yeah, honestly, the, the way ISIS was defeated was on the battlefield. You know, the, the narrative died with the caliphate, really. So I think even though it, I shouldn't say that that's been a complete success, they still exist. There's still an insurgency, and God knows they're still recruiting in refugee camps, which are hell's on earth in eastern Syria. So they're they're down, but they're not out. But there has been market success. I think one of the things that I've not heard from the people who are skeptical of every effort, right, or who are conspiratorial about every effort, is what they think the ideal strategy should be. Right. And so sometimes you get these hand wavy, like, well, we need to solve capitalism. Okay. Well, that, you know, come on, you know, <laughs> but in the real world and in, in, in the next two years, right. you know, <laughs> what's the, what's the solution? And then I became a junior in college. <laughs> and so I know I'm going to, I'm probably going to get shit for that comment on Twitter, but it's true. Oh yeah. You're, you're, that's it. The gray zone's coming after you now. Um, but no, but there, there is this question of what is the ask? Because public sentiment around what happened, what was happening on Twitter, even holding Gek aside was, was after the Bataclan attack, right? That was where. All of a sudden, the visceral nature of what happened in Paris on that weekend was where I think people really began to see that this was something that that had to be dealt with. And that's where public opinion shifts. And then you don't see quite so many articles or quite so many comments around like, you know, well, is it silencing the free speech of, of ISIS amplifiers to say, maybe this is a dangerous org and maybe this is not what the platform should be used for. And that's where you start to see the platforms change their policies first. Now, maybe the argument is the platforms are supposed to do this wholly without any feedback from the government. But the problem is the platforms don't want that most of the time. And the reason is that that then puts, right. that then kind of turns weirdly kind of platforms into centers for counter-propaganda and information warfare themselves, which is a really weird thing to ask some private tech company to prosecute, right? And, and so that's where I think, yeah. again, the question of what do you want? Where should the capacity exist? Where should the capability live? We've tried, you know, at SIO to make some arguments around transparency. I think that it is perfectly reasonable to say if you have a government takedown request, then that should be the, where there's like an explicit request to take something down or something is taken down in response to a government tip that comes out. That is, you know, made clear to the public. And you do see Google in some cases put out these reports where they'll just be like a single sentence and it'll say in their transparency report, something like um, the government reached out with this request. This is our determination. This is what we did. Right. Very, very simple. So that's the kind of thing where this concept exists for copyright takedown, you know, so you can see if big corporations are trying to silence the speech or the fair use of artists, you know, you can envision a similar framework whereby we increase transparency so that people can see when a government request is being made. Mm -hmm. The platforms have already done quite a bit of transparency. Twitter in particular had data sets that they were putting out, you know, they would redact the name of the handle, they would hash it, but you would, you could see the content, right? And Facebook would release these reports with big screenshots. Right. And that seemed to me like a very positive way to help explain to the public that these operations were happening, these attempts at manipulation were happening. And while we might like to see them through the lens of the US culture war or free speech, they were happening globally. And so it's, you know, I, I think that we lose sight of that 
in this very political partisan understanding of what is happening. But there are very real implications, you know, in, in other countries that yeah. where the government is the one that is <laughs> trying to take down a lot of content also. And we should have a, a you know platform policy and transparency function that makes these things a little bit more visible, if anything, just to diffuse the sort of conspiratorial takes that have, you know, that have begun proliferating about them. One one of the things I think is actually quite successful and rather funny is, you know, the sort of reader feedback comment or contextualization on tweets, especially ones that go viral or have a lot of engagements. I mean, I saw one recently of a guy, I think he posted a, a map, you know, that all like kind of Russian meme, like, look at all the NATO bases here. And this is all about and it said, and, and oh, the, the, the tweet had something like, you know, uh, we promised the Soviets, we wouldn't expand NATO one inch to the east or anything. It's actually Gorbachev is on record saying no, the, the promise was US troops would not deploy to the territory of the former GDR, right? It was no, no discussion about NATO expansion. That just makes you look really stupid. It doesn't make you a martyr, right? When you're taken offline, it's like, oh, I've been censored. I'm speaking truth to power. The man, the establishment, the deep state doesn't want you to hear this. Well, no, here, by all means, listen to it. But here, here are the actual facts. And this is just how kind of out of joint this person's perspective of the world is. Now, I don't know. I haven't seen any studies that measure the impact of kind of critiquing or correcting something in real time on social media. But that, that struck me as more... First of all, edifying for people who don't know any better. And secondly, embarrassing for malign actors or just bad faith bullshit artists, right? The studies on fact checking and correcting have been a little bit unclear. You know, some, mm -hmm. some show great promise, some show not so much. Sometimes it's like how the experiment was constructed. So, yeah. but holding all that aside, one of the things that I did think should have held great promise for Twitter, maybe still does, you know, it's so hard to figure out what's really going on in there, was the idea of community notes. Mm -hmm. And I paid a lot of attention to them in the lead up to the 2022 midterms because it did seem like a way to avoid the problem of the politicization of fact checking. Now, maybe in, again, Twitter's a global platform and I, the problem with um, Birdwatch or Community Notes, as it's come to be called. Last time I checked, maybe it was maybe a month, month and a half ago, there were only about 2,000 people who had been approved to write notes. So you do have a real kind of like, you know, boiling the ocean sort of phenomenon here. So I do think it could be used in conjunction with the sort of old fact-checking model. Maybe you deploy the old fact-checkers to work in places where distrust and fact-checking is not part of the uh, political zeitgeist, but on the community And then, and then all, you, all you have to do is undermine the integrity of the fact-checker. Well, the, and, that, and that's what's happened yeah. over the last few right. years, or the argument that a label is censorship or a, you know, downranking is censorship. Everything is, um, you know, that, that again, that the idea that even putting a fact check on a tweet is censoring it, which I think that in my mind, that's just absolutely ludicrous. Like a, a fact check or a community note is counter speech. It's contextualization. Yeah. And if we want to have a public square, if somebody was standing there with a bullhorn yelling stuff, you'd probably have somebody yelling back. No, that's not exactly. true. I you mean, know, they're and, all about fostering debate. Well, here's your debate, right? So I think that's a design. You know, that, that's really when we were talking earlier about what sorts of methods are there for addressing challenges. That's a design phenomenon. You can create. Everybody hates the word healthy conversations, but <laughs> um, maybe not quite so bad as they are today. You can do that through, hopefully, the expansion of programs like Community Notes. It, it's not quite there yet, but it has potential. And that's where I think thinking beyond moderation as a binary, as a leave it up, take it down into something more along the lines of how do you you know, how do you contextualize this story over time? That I think for me, like Wikipedia still remains the best possible place to have that. But it is really hard, I think, for media to contextualize something over time in large part, because then there, you know, their stories would all be like a thousand words longer or whatever. But just if there was some way to, you know, to, to do those annotations, I think that's, in my opinion, um, where we need to get on the information, you know, just the, the healthy discourse space. No, I mean, and it just kind of comes back to the prosaic and boring work of debunking or contextualizing. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, the advent of digital technology has made this so much more difficult, right? If you go back to the Soviet active measures, cooking up conspiracy theory meant cultivating a journalist, a sympathetic journalist or an asset who would then plant the story in a newspaper, which means getting it past editors and copy editors and so on, and then hoping that that story gets picked up. And now you just think like, some asshole with a Substack clicks publish and a Twitter account, and that's it. I mean, it's it's the old Twain line that the lie will move around the world, you know, before the truth gets a chance to put its boots on. And of course, now we even interrogate the very concept of truth. It's this kind of epistemological relativism, like, oh, nobody has real ownership of facts anymore. Well, okay, that is the first step in the complete collapse of a society and a democracy when there's no consensus whatsoever. But anyway, 
Look, I told you this would be 30 to 45 minutes. I kind of suspected it was going to be a lot longer. (laughs) Fascinating. And I've long admired your work and your Twitter commentary. But we didn't even, oh God, we didn't even get into Elon Musk and all. There's so many other things I, I want to talk about. But that, gives me an oppor- yeah, exactly. <laughs> that gives me an opportunity to bring you back on the show, which I would love to do. I mean, when your book is out for sure, but if you have any, if the Stanford Observatory is putting out any new reports, do let us know and you can come back. Thanks so much. We'll do that. Okay. Uh, my guest this week has been uh, Renee Deresta. She is, say your title again one more time. Technical Research Manager. Technical Research Manager at the Stanford Observatory. What is it? The Stanford Observatory on? Stanford Internet Observatory. All right. There you go. We are io.stanford.edu. We'd I, you like know, to read all of the reports on Purgosian. There you go. <laughs> that I, we've I, done over I, the years. I had a sort of weird memory redux of my Syria days, and my instinct was to say the Stanford Observatory for Human Rights, because there's something called the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. But I guess, you know, countering disinformation and can be construed in some ways as a, a human right form of human rights. Anyway, this is Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation and Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 